Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. So Lord, what we want right now is to see you in this story, to see your, your power and your purposes as the God who rules over nations and famines and yet stoops low to rule over our hearts. So Lord, come now by your spirit and through this word that was just read and speak to your people. Exhort, encourage, convict, comfort, all for the sake that we might see and become more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So today what we're going to see, the main thing I want you to see, and the main thing I think the author wants you to see is that God is the great storyteller of all history. God's a great storyteller of all history, and, and we're meant to see that as we read along, because all of you now are experts in reading Genesis, right? You, you've seen the patterns over and over again. You've seen the story over and over again. You, you kind of have a sense for what's coming. And so the author's writing away going, you've read 40 chapters, and so as I'm unpacking these events for you, you have certain things that are coming to your mind. He's the author of all history, right? You've seen pharaohs before, right? You've seen famines before. You've seen foolishness and fighting and, and all these things before, and you've seen them all come and go. Rulers come and go, famines come and go, different patriarchs come and go, and yet God has remained. God has been with his people. God's been the one that stays and writes the story of our lives and the story of nations. And what we've seen in the storyline of Genesis and the whole story of the Bible as we've pointed forward over and over again is that the God of the Bible is the God who is with his people. He's with his people. He doesn't leave. He doesn't turn away. He's there and present in the highs and in the lows in the joys and in the sorrows and the pleasures and in the pain. And he pours out his power and presence and even those things meant for evil, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And these two things combined, on the one hand that God is the great storyteller and author of all history, and on the other hand that God is always with his people to remember and to redeem and to restore, is meant to bring the people of God deep rest if we'll sit with it long enough, if we'll think about it long enough. My God writes the story of history, writes the story of redemption, and my God never leaves me or forsakes me, but is always with me. And we are further along in the story. We're way further along in the story. We know God has remembered us objectively and redeemed us in Christ by the blood of the cross, restoring us day by day as he pursues us with goodness and mercy like we just sang about. Our future is secure and our hope is alive because Jesus paid for our sins and rose again to conquer death. Do you believe this morning that Jesus paid for your sins? Every last sin, every sin you've already committed, every sin you're going to commit, Jesus has paid for, which is what this whole story is pointing to. The story of Joseph has been a story of God's presence with him that kept him courageous, compassionate, and content somehow in all kinds of situations. 
And this is our story as well. We may experience suffering and sadness, or maybe you'll experience power and prosperity. And God's promise is that he'll be with us to help us rest in his promises and power at every step. In fact, I think Paul summarizes the story of Joseph and every follower of Jesus well in Philippians 4, 12 to 13. Here's what he says. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. So what's the secret? What's the secret of just walking through life at rest, content, happy, joyful, hopeful kinds of people? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the story of Joseph, and that's our story. So let's dive in and see it in this text. Point number one, Pharaoh dreams and Joseph is remembered. So we find out in verse one that we're two years later in the story. And this is kind of the, the way Genesis goes, right? All of a sudden we're 10 years later waiting for children. We're two decades later waiting for this. And now here we are, Joseph having been forgotten. And we're two years later in the story. Two years of being forgotten and left in prison for Joseph. That's a long time. That's not a long weekend, right? That, that's not a few days, right? That's not like waiting at the DMV, right? He's been gone for two years, the cupbearer. And here Joseph is just like waiting. At this point, he's probably thinking what? Never getting out of here. <laughs> this is my life. And it's totally separate. He probably doesn't know what's happening. Pharaoh has a dream. And in this dream, he's by the Nile River and he dreams of cows in the river. Right, so this was common then. Cattle would wade in parts of the river to stay cool, to cool themselves off under the hot conditions. And there are seven attractive and plump cows, and then there are seven ugly and thin cows in verses two to three on the bank looking at these attractive cows. In verse four, if you look at it, it's kind of a shocking vision of cow cannibalism. These are cannibal cows, right? The opposite of the Chick-fil-A cows that just want you to eat chicken, right? These are cows that eat cows. And the seven skinny, ugly cows swallow up the plump, attractive cows. That's what we know. They just come and they destroy them. So after that vision, it says, verse 5, Pharaoh falls asleep again. And this time, instead of cannibal cows, it's cannibal corn, good alliteration for me, right? Cannibal cows and cannibal corn, seven plump and good ears, and seven thin and blighted ears. And again, the thin, blighted, ugly ones swallow up the plump, attractive ones. And in verse eight, Pharaoh wakes up and it says, his spirit was troubled. Why? And if you had those dreams, you'd go, I've seen too many Chick-fil-A commercials, right? You wouldn't interpret as much, but God in the word of God is always working through dreams. He's, he's revealing things through dreams. And even in the day and age we live in, we need discernment and help, but, but God can communicate this way. And he is here to Pharaoh, I think, to bring Joseph onto the scene. In Egypt especially, dreams were considered deeply meaningful. And to have two similar cannibalistic dreams would have shocked Pharaoh in a way that would have made him go, what is going to happen? What is going on? 
So we could say, well, how troubled was he? Well, one of the ways we can tell how big we think a problem is is by how hard we go after a problem, right? Right, like how, how much, how many of our resources we bring to bear on the problem. And in verse eight, it says, he calls all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. He's called all the pros, which means Pharaoh's desperate. He is woken up and he has a sense, this is a big deal. Whatever's going on is a big deal. And I'm gonna marshal all the resources at my disposal to get the answer, right? Pharaoh is desperate. And in these times, Pharaohs would have been considered themselves gods. They would have bowed to them. They would have been considered kind of godlike. And in Egypt, that was all the more so. And this so-called God could not even interpret his own dreams. So he has to marshal all of his best, all of his brightest. Kids, I was trying to think of how to relate this to you. Maybe you've had trouble in school, like maybe math or reading or history or science, and there was just something you couldn't quite understand. Imagine if your parents knew you were having trouble and called 700 teachers to your house. Just one by one, let me help you. <laughs> let me help you, right? It's, it's a lot of help. It's a lot of people coming on the scene. And that's kind of what Pharaoh is doing here. He's calling everyone he can think of to try to get the answers. And in verse eight, it says, none of them could help. So you can imagine now he's all the more troubled. What is this? What if I just dreamed about it? No one, none of the pros, not me, who's like a god. None of us can figure it out. Well, then in verse 9, our forgetful friend, the cupbearer, comes back on the scene. The cupbearer who forgot about Joseph for two years suddenly remembers Joseph. Two dreams in prison, two dreams in Pharaoh's court, and suddenly his memories come rushing back. In verse 9, the cupbearer sees Pharaoh is disturbed and has no answers from his pros. Probably when a pharaoh is this disturbed is not a good time to be his servant, a super fun time to be his servant. So the cupbearer's probably getting desperate, remembering prison, I like it when pharaoh's happy, how can I help? And so he takes kind of a big risk. It's a big risk for him to, to recommend Joseph. In verses nine to 10, he recounts his offenses. Think of him groveling at this point, right? I remember how bad I was. Remember how horrible I was? And then being thrown in prison and in verses 11 and 12, he recounts the baker having dreams and him having dreams the same night. And he says, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, giving us the impression that he doesn't even really remember his name. <laughs> the young Hebrew there, servant, and he was able to interpret our dreams for us and then, verse 13, he says, his interpretations came true with precision. He, he got it all right. It happened exactly as he had predicted. And Joseph is remembered. And what we're meant to see here, as good readers of Genesis who've seen it over and over again, is we know God never forgot. So even though the cupbearer is remembering, we know God never forgot. Whose story is this? Whose story is this? Is this Pharaoh's story? Is this mainly about Pharaoh? Is this Egypt's story, the most powerful nation on the planet at that time? It's not. And it's meant to see that. We might just gloss over it, not quite knowing what culture was like then, but Pharaoh, who's supposed to be a god, 
cannot even interpret his own dream. He can't help himself. Neither can the best that Egypt has to offer. The cupbearer who forgot about Joseph for two years kind of comes in as the protagonist here to bring the help, help coming from unlikely places. This is God's story. He's with Joseph. He's working to preserve people from famine and extinction through a suffering servant in Joseph. God is with him. God has not forgotten him. And this is God's story. And God will bring everything to pass at just the right time. Think about had the cupbearer remembered Joseph at that first party. Is Pharaoh desperate? No, stuff's good. He's at a party. He's having a good time. He's probably not going, oh, Awesome, I, I need that dream interpreter now. But God makes him wait and just at the proper time exalts him. And Jesus, right, the, the parallels are not hard to see. Jesus is this suffering servant who will save and sustain a people who is turned away from by God so that God never has to turn away from us. God is always with us. If you trust in Jesus, you're in this same story that he's telling, that God's telling Your story, like Joseph's, is being woven into God's story in God's timing for God's purposes by God's power so that one day his people can enjoy his presence. That's what's going on in your life. Your story is being woven into God's story. Every event in your life, highs, lows, joys, sorrows, Surprises, predictable, all of it's a part of God's story. He's working and weaving in your story. And it doesn't just start for adults, right? If you're in grade school and you trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, you're in God's story. He sees you, He's for you. If you're in middle school, and you trust in Jesus to forgive your sins. You're in God's story. He sees you. He's for you. If you're in high school and you trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, you're in God's story. He sees you. He's for you. He's going to work in your life. You're an adult and you trust in Jesus. You're single. You're divorced. You're married. You have kids. You don't have kids. You're younger. You're older. You're in God's story. He sees you. And he's for you. So maybe you're here today and you feel forgotten. Or maybe you're here today and you just can't quite understand why your story is going the way it's going. If you trust in Jesus, you're in God's story. And he hasn't forgotten you and he's weaving it together for your good, the good of others around you and for his glory all at once in ways that you couldn't perceive and might not come to pass for 5, 10, 15 years like we continue to see here, but he's working and he's with you. All right, point number two, Pharaoh calls and Joseph interprets. So Pharaoh's desperate. It would have been crazy for a Pharaoh, a king, a godlike person of Egypt to call in a a feeble servant foreigner for answers. But that's what he does because he's desperate at this point and he hears of this successful interpreter and so he calls for Joseph and you can feel the desperation by the way the actions come quickly they they quickly bring him out he shaves he gets dressed he comes to Pharaoh and so here Joseph is in prison this morning and by lunchtime standing in the court of Pharaoh right and remember Joseph knows that when Pharaoh's not happy with you what does he do 
He knows, right? So you can imagine what Joseph is feeling as he walks in there. And in verse 15, Pharaoh gets right to the point. As I've had a dream, there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. You, 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 right? The author does that on purpose. So here's Joseph. He's been in prison. He's been betrayed. He's been tossed aside by his own brothers, forgotten in a pit. And so the, the, the theme of the story is, has God, or has, has God left him? Has God forgotten him? Or maybe, like some of our patriarchs have at certain times, maybe Joseph's forgotten God. Maybe Joseph's feeble. Maybe it's going to be a moment of foolishness, a step backwards for him. But the first words from his mouth after Pharaoh says, you, 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 are radically God-centered. This is what he says. Verse 16, it's not in me. Not me. (laughs) Not me. Emphatically, not me. It's emphatic. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Remember, Egypt had a lot of gods. That's who all the magicians and all the wise men were talking to to try to get answers. Right? That, that's who they were talking to. That's who they were calling on. And here comes a young foreigner who was in prison this morning, now in the court of Pharaoh, and basically saying, don't give me credit. Your gods are just too small. They're just too small. My God is powerful and all-knowing. He'll show up. And this reminds us and is meant to remind us as we read the story of how God shows up and and puts down all the gods of Egypt in the Exodus. This should bring reminders of Elijah, right, who is at the altar and all the gods are trying to do their things with all the priests and he says, maybe your God's sleeping. (laughs) Maybe your God's going to the bathroom, right, not to be offensive. He's busy doing something, but my God's gonna come and work for his glory and for our good. Joseph is utterly God-centered. He's all in with the God who's been with him despite his troubles. God's power and presence and just the reality of who he is is better to Joseph than popularity, pride, possessions, or any kind of earthly power that he could gain or that he's standing before. It's incredible. I love it. I just said all week, I I want to be like this. I want to be like this. Somehow, God, would you work this in me that I could be like this, this kind of fellowship and trust and humility and then boldness for me, for our church in a world that is desperately looking for answers. What, What is life about? Why are we here? Is it about me, my present happiness? Like, what is this thing about? Egypt is looking for answers. The whole nation looking for answers in this text. And Joseph just comes up and says, it's not in me, but I know God. I know the true God. And it's not. It's not an angry, outraged answer meant to make Pharaoh feel stupid meant to bring him attention, right? He's calmly, clearly stating what is true. He sees reality for as it is, and he speaks reality. Why? When you read these stories, you say, why? (laughs) How? Because he's experienced this reality. God's been with him. God's been real. He's seen the past power and presence and goodness of God in the prison, 
in being sold into slavery in several different dark places now. So now in Pharaoh's court, he can stand and say, I know God. I know God. I know him. He'll answer. I can't answer, but he'll answer. This past grace makes him confident of future grace. And what I want most for us, for me, for my family, for our family here, for these South Cities, is for God to be this real to us. For the gospel to be this real to us. For our hope to be this real to us. Like, there's a lot of things I don't know. And there's a a lot of things I don't understand. And there's not many things I'm very good at. But I know Jesus. (laughs) I know Jesus. Like Like in Acts 4, when it's these common men. And they're talking. And the rulers, what do they say? They're astonished. Because they could tell what? They've been with Jesus. <laughs> These are just common, silly men, but they've been with Jesus. That's what my story is. That's what I want our story to be. Common, silly, weak, foolish on our own, but we've been with Jesus. So then Pharaoh recounts his dreams almost verbatim in verses 17 to 24, only with a little more detail about the ugliness and the frightening nature of the dreams. And in verse 24, Pharaoh laments that he has not gotten an answer from his very best professionals. And so then, in verses 25 to 36, Joseph interprets the dreams and gives the solution. So here's the interpretation. The interpretation is the seven plump cows and corn are seven years of prosperity, great prosperity in agriculture and business in every way and food in Egypt. It's going to be great. But the seven thin cows and corn are seven years of extreme famine that will come with such power and such force as to devour everything up and make everybody forget about how good it was. And then almost to cement the weightiness of it, Joseph says, and by the way, because there's two dreams, what God's telling me to tell you about that is, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen. So what's the solution Joseph says the solution is find some good guys to take a fifth of the prosperity during the good years, store it up to feed and save the people throughout the seven famine years in the major cities of Egypt. And that way, Egypt and many other peoples, including a small people called Israel, will survive. They'll make it because of this. An interpretation And not only an interpretation, but Joseph goes beyond the interpretation and says, I have your solution. Where does that kind of boldness come from? Where does that kind of confidence come from? Where does that kind of humility come from? Well, again, we don't have to wonder. Notice how much God is on Joseph's lips, even as he speaks to Pharaoh here. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Again, as good readers, we should be asking, whose story is this? Who does this story belong to? Who's in charge here? Pharaoh, God-like Pharaoh? No. Can Pharaoh change God's plans? Can Pharaoh stop the famine? Can Pharaoh do anything here on his own? He can't. God has remembered Joseph. God has revealed to Pharaoh. God has fixed what will happen. And God will surely do it. He does what he pleases. 
And for us, that's good news because what he pleases to do is work for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Just kept thinking this week, I want to be this God-centered and <laughs> how I think about everything. And I want to be this God-centered in how I think about everything, not because I want to check some box or feel better about the way I talk about things, but because it's true. This is true. This is how the world works. This is how the world is. I want us to have the gospel on our lips. Right? Just, it's true. It's the most true thing. It's the, the best story. I want us to be humble and not take credit for anything. Not false Minnesota nice humility, but like God is real and I am who I am humility. <laughs> and at the same time, be courageous and point to Jesus for everything. God's been with Joseph, near to him in the pit and the pain. And Joseph has responded to God's kind presence and power with a faith that humbles him and points to God's goodness and plans and purposes and power. Last point, Pharaoh appoints and Joseph leads. So in the last 21 verses of this chapter comes this extreme turnaround in Joseph's life. Pharaoh hears of Joseph's wise plan and says, honoring the true God, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God. In other words, Pharaoh is saying, we need this powerful, interpreting, event-causing God on our side, and I can see God's with this guy. We need him. And Pharaoh, who's supposed to be godlike, is giving credit to the true God and appointing Joseph in command over all of Egypt with the very authority of Pharaoh himself. You see it in different ways. Verse 40, Pharaoh says he puts him over his house and all his people. In verse 41, he then puts him over all the land of Egypt. In verse 42, he gives him his signet ring, which he would need to enact orders as if he were Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh gives him power and clothes and gold chains and all these things to fit the position. In verse 30, 43, he makes him ride in the second chariot so that all will need to bow down to him. And in verse 45, he gives him in marriage to a noble, aristocratic, religious priest's daughter. High society with all the plethora of gods. He's now rich and powerful and everything is at his disposal. And again, we would say, whose story is this? <laughs> whose story? How, how does this happen? Right? Is, is Pharaoh really the one raising Joseph up here? Or is it God causing the cupbearer to remember at just the right time so that God could get glory and Joseph could do good for his people? Joseph was humbled and now exalted to save his people. And again, he's pointing beyond himself. Jesus, <laughs> humbled to the point of death on a cross that God might raise him up and exalt him so that what? So that every knee would bow and he would save his people. In fact, the road of the people of God in all of history following Jesus is one of knowing God's care, walking through suffering and humility like Jesus and waiting for God to work. This is our calling as we follow in the footsteps of Joseph and even more in the footsteps of Jesus. Wait. Know his care. Know he hasn't forgotten. Humble ourselves. Call on him and wait for his timing even when it's not matching ours. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what Joseph did. That's our calling. That's what Jesus did while he faithfully followed his father when he was here. In verses 46 to 52, Joseph does, with God's help, all that he's called to do. Gathers a fifth of the food and the good years until they can't even count it. The land is fruitful and abounding, and so is Joseph's family. He has two sons, born to the daughter of an aristocratic priest while he dwells in Pharaoh's court, and he names them Hebrew names. (laughs) I think that would have been offensive too. Right, you're married to the, the priest's daughter of all this plethora of gods. You're in Pharaoh's court and probably household. And you're like, I'm going to name him some Hebrew names. Another sign that he's faithfully seeking God. Manasseh, which means forget. No longer is Joseph forgotten. But he thinks he can finally forget all those hard years. Though they're going to revisit him in the next chapter, next week when Pastor Nathan preaches. And then Ephraim, which means fruitful. Because God made him fruitful even in his Affliction. So even the names, right, we've seen significance in names throughout Genesis. Even the names he gives his sons point to how Joseph just sees reality. Right? God has done this. God has been with him. God has made him fruitful. God has seen him and been with him and cared for him. This is God's story and he's weaving Joseph's story into it in his timing. Well, in verses 53 to 57... The famine comes and it should have been a disaster, but Egypt is ready because God's power and presence at work through Joseph. The land has bread. And it says here, all the earth came to Egypt. In fact, all the earth came to Joseph to get bread to save them. And again, this is pointing ahead to a story about the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Where in John 12, it says this about what was happening as all the Gentiles tried to get near him. It says this in John 12, 19. All the world has gone after him. All the world coming to Joseph. All the world going after Jesus. This was spoken by the Pharisees. They weren't happy about it. Despite their best efforts, people wanted Jesus, the bread of life for their hungry souls. And they would crucify him and put him to death. But his resurrection over that death would only have more and more come to the bread of life. All the world come to the bread of life. Indeed, many have come to Jesus and taken the bread of life into the whole world and into their own souls, even all the way to Lakeville, Minnesota. We're part of all the world coming to Jesus, where we're gathered to worship him today. So as we think about that, the story of Joseph in Genesis, the story of the bread of life who, who came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, rose again to conquer death and put his spirit in a bunch of weak and fearful disciples to make them bold and courageous and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We should ask the question, whose story is this? Whose story is this? Like, who can write a story like this? Who's powerful enough to make this happen? Who's powerful enough to use weak and foolish people to make his name great? Who's wise enough to make it happen? Who's strong enough to weave our stories into this grand story for our good, the good of others around you in his own glory? And the answer that this story of Joseph points to is the only true God who sent his son to die on a cross to save us from our sins, that he could be the bread of life for all who would come. 
and would save us from the famine of our souls that so easily run after other things. He satisfies. He's the bread of life. He saves. He satisfies. He sustains. This is God's story. When I say this, I mean everything. (laughs) Everything is God's story. And and the beauty of his transcendence and his power is that he's also imminent and draws near to you and weaves your story into his story for your good, the good of those around you and his glory. So would you bow your heads? And I'm just going to ask you a few questions as we meditate and come towards communion. Right now, I just want to give you some moments of silence and solitude. It's something we don't have much in the world that we live in right now. And I just want you to think about your story. I want you to think about the highs and the lows in your life right now. I want you to think about where you are and where you've been. And I want you to recognize, as you think about that, how God has been with you every step of the way. And just take a minute or two and think about your story and the way God has been with you in it. And now in light of seeing your story and God's being with you, I want you to just take whatever your deepest pain or your burden or struggle or sin in your life is. And right now I want you to cast your cares on Jesus knowing he cares for you. So tell him your pains, tell him your fears and give those to him right now.
And now I just want you to take a minute to ask your heart to rejoice that God is with you, weaving your story into his story, that he's with you for his glory, for your good, until the day he'll finally bring us to his place to enjoy his presence. So just call your heart now, not discounting the pain, not discounting the hurt, but call your heart to rejoice in the God who's weaving your story into his story and is always for you, not against you because of Jesus. So Lord, thank you for being with your people. Thank you for weaving our story into your story, for your glory and for our good. Thank you for making that objectively true and sure for us in the person and work of Jesus. And help us as we wait, uh, rejoice in all that you've purchased for us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.